So you can say our hazardous waste started with a bang, you know, if you really want to. <laughs> chemistry is a daunting subject. My first chemistry course at Williams was Chem 155, Principles of Modern Chemistry. This course was by far the toughest one during my first semester, and I quickly learned that by the second lab, Qualitative Analysis. Qual Lab. To give you an idea, Qual Lab was a two-day lab. Every other lab was only one day, and this lab took up eight pages of my lab notebook. Every other lab was no more than four pages. And this was back when I used to write single-spaced, too. Needless to say, this was the most difficult lab for the newbie chemistry student. Qual Lab required the identification of unknown metal ions in a mixed solution, based on whether certain metal ions would form complexes with other molecules. These molecules are called ligands, from the Latin root ligare, which means to tie. When a ligand binds to a metal ion, usually involving two or more of the same ligand, we call that a coordination complex, since the ligands and metal join together in a specific geometry, namely they coordinate. Once a complex is formed, it is really, really hard to separate it back into the metal ion and the ligands. The reaction is irreversible. Another key idea is that some ligands can be very sensitive and form complexes with any metal atom, whereas others will only form complexes with certain metals. So with the ideas of irreversibility of complex formation, and different sensitivities of ligands in mind. A question naturally arises. What ligands should you add first? The more sensitive one or the less sensitive one? If you said the less sensitive one, then you're right. The less sensitive one is very selective. If it reacts, then you know for sure you will have this specific metal atom in your unknown mixture whereas adding the more sensitive ligand could cause several reactions to occur, which would leave you uncertain as to whether it was one or two or maybe even three metal atoms that caused a reaction to occur. Thus, identification proceeds by starting with the least sensitive ligand, moving up towards the most sensitive ligand. That's essentially how Qualab works. On the day of the lab, you're given an unknown solution of three metal ions, more or less, and have to undergo a two-day procedure to identify them. Once you've finished identifying, or in my case, misidentifying them, your unknown solution goes into a bucket. But a simple question that came to my mind while throwing my solution away was, where does all this go? Little did I know this simple question would lead me to even bigger ideas than I could have ever thought of. But first, back to Qual Lab. With me is uh, Professor Anthony Carascolo in the chemistry department, um, new-ish to Williams. It's my second year. I teach courses in intro chemistry, and I also teach the Introduction to Environmental Science course for the sort of the core science course in, in Envi. Who will talk a bit about Qual Lab and its educational value. We have the, I don't know if infamous is the best word, but the, the qual lab, the qualitative analysis lab, where students are given um, a liquid sample with some number of metal ions in them, and then you're asked to figure out what they are. And so they develop skills like how to follow a flow chart, how to actually um, you know, put something over a Bunsen burner, and how to do this safely, how to 
trying to minimize contamination between samples, um, how to, you know, be confident in your ability to make some assessment of your sample. So for example, you know, this turned red. So be confident in your ability to say that this is red. Similar to my thought about Qualab in Chem 155, Professor Kelskuelo also had a similar revelation in his college education. Yes, yeah, so as actually, so as a grad student, we had to, I took a class on sustainability engineering, and we had to basically take a day of our life, we had to basically do a life cycle analysis of all the materials that we were using. It was our semester project, and it turned out the, as sort of an atmospheric chemist, as an environmental chemist, atmospheric chemist, my biggest footprint, because I mean, like my biggest footprint actually came from the chemicals that I was using in lab. And so that sort of opened my eyes to maybe I should start thinking about, um, you know, what my impact is. Because um, it's sort of easy for me to just step in and say, well, you know, I might have a big carbon footprint for this, but it has a bigger, there are bigger implications. You know, I'm, I'm an environmental scientist, so there are implications that are very positive for me doing the chemistry. But I don't know if that's actually, if that, if that necessarily cancels out my carbon footprint. So something Professor Carasquillo touched upon was the excess waste of chemistry labs. And that got me thinking, what can we do about this waste? That got me interested in the chemical life cycle of our labs. So I reached out to our former chemical hygiene officer, the very first one in fact, Dr. Ann Skinner, who told me a bit about how we deal with chemical waste, historically and currently. Uh, I'm Dr. Ann Skinner. I'm senior lecturer emerita in the chemistry department. And in the early 90s, to be honest, I don't remember exactly when, um, I picked up as, I was only part-time in teaching, so I picked up as an additional responsibility the job of chemical hygiene mm. officer. So what did Williams do in terms of chemical waste in the very beginning? But I, at the time, we had basically no systematic method of disposing of chemical waste. Um, the things were piling up in a, in a closet, um, basically. So um, I researched uh, companies that took care of chemical waste. I found the other, I just found the other day, the invoice for our first chemical waste shed, which was out somewhere um, that uh, is now covered by the new science building. Professor Skinner also shared a funny story with me about what happened during the first chemical cleanup session. In the 40s and 50s, I don't know exactly when, um, students in organic chemistry would make, would prepare, you know, would synthesize compounds the way they do now. But the uh, faculty would collect those compounds and they would then become unknowns for the students the following year. And so we had accumulated a lot of little bottles with um, a label that said what it was on it. And I think there may occasionally have been a date, but it was mostly the style of the label that told you how old it was. Mm -hmm. And when we were going to have our first chemical waste pickup, we decided to get rid of all of these, which was a sensible thing. Uh, they were certainly very unknown by then because of course they were, many of them were deteriorated. And so the then stockroom manager brought them all out in a tray and I started looking at them and one of them was 246-trinitrotoluene. Mm -hmm. Do you recognize that? Commonly known as TNT. Oh. <laughs> there wasn't much of it. It was a very small bottle, a little bit. 
but what's interesting about that is TNT, you know, it, if, if it just sits there, there's no problem. It's a, it's a shock hazard. But there was no lip on the shelf where all these little bottles were. Mm-hmm. If that thing had gone off, if it had fallen off the shelf, the whole stock room would have, it would have detonated and the whole stock room would have, uh, and we would never have known what it was because until the stock room manager got organized and started pulling these things out, we had no inventory. So, uh, after that, we had inventory. So I called our putative uh, handler and said, uh, I think we may have a problem. I found some 246 trinitrotoluene in the, st- in the storeroom. And he said, oh, 246 trinitrotoluene, that doesn't sound too bad. And then I heard somebody in the background say, oh, my God. We ended up having the state fire marshal come out and detonate. I mean, if it had gone off there, it would have blown out a couple of windows. It wasn't going to bring the building down. It was very small. But it would have been very impressive. So you can say our hazardous waste started with a bang, you know, if you really want to. <laughs> Later on, our chemical waste management would undergo changes. Both the collection of hazardous waste and the <clears throat> um, shipping of it has become quite complicated. Um, we had, originally we had sort of three streams, you know, inorganic, um, organic, so forth, and then halogenated organics. Very quickly, we had to start subdividing them into different categories. I had to learn the different categories of, you know, where I don't have it anymore. I gave it to Norm. Norm Bell is the Science Center Manager and Safety Officer and the current Chemical Hygiene Officer. Code of Federal Regulations. I had to keep looking up and seeing what category this came in. Dr. Skinner and Professor Carasquillo both told me that they guessed that Clean Harbor the company that's currently contracted with Williams to deal with the chemical waste evaporates the chemical waste by boiling and then buries whatever is left over in a lined landfill or underground. You know, I won't say that we've been ahead of the curve, but we certainly have been, um, we, we've put resources into making certain we didn't get behind the curve. And we do have... Um, faculty members, you know, who are interested in sustainability. And so we have to, our emphasis really is on collecting, making certain nothing goes down the drain that shouldn't go down the drain. All this talk about being ahead of the curve and chemical waste minimization got me wondering about whether I could find someone who could tell me more about these processes. Professor Carasquillo talked with me a little bit about chemical waste in the modern world. So I, I heard the term green chemistry in my Environmental Studies 101 course at Bowdoin. Wait, what's green chemistry? Um, and I had really no idea what it was at first. I thought it, I thought we were making plants. Um, and it turns out it's, it's actually this really cool and it's really up and coming um, area of chemistry. Um, it's actually the Green Chemistry Institute at Carnegie Mellon. And we have, uh, I believe there's a green chemistry component of ACS. Like it's something that's really starting to blow up. And it sort of centers around this idea of, um, just trying to be sustainable in your chemical practices. And so there are, I think, 12 principles or 10 or 12 principles that you want to follow. It's been a while since I've looked at that. Um, and it, all of them really basically are dealing with wanting to sort of minimize waste or seek alternatives that are more environmentally benign um, or less hazardous to human health, ones that will degrade really quickly in the environment. That's something that we're really interested in. But really, the 
the, the goal is to try and just think, make us, force us to think about the reactions that we're running in the lab and the consequences that they could have on the environment if these compounds are released. Oh, I see. So it's kind of like the chemistry discipline that cleans up after the chemistry discipline. Just in the last 10 years, I've seen this term pop up quite a bit. Like I, I see ads for, you know, a lot of, and I guess it's sort of, it's like it's a buzzword. So a lot of our buzz phrase, a lot of companies want to say that they're green now, right? And so like, oh, like we're, we're studying green chemistry approaches or oh, we're taking green chemistry approaches or we're going to be green in the production of this. Even after talking to Professor Carascuolo about green chemistry, I still wasn't exactly sure what it was. So I decided I wanted to find someone who could tell me a little bit about green chemistry, what Professor Carascuolo just mentioned. A quick Google search led me to Mind Green Lab, a nonprofit focused on bringing sustainability to chemistry labs. At this point, I wasn't really focused on lab sustainability, but rather just telling a simple story about chemical waste management. But quickly, the story would become one of lab sustainability and green chemistry. I talked with Allison Paradise, the founder and CEO, about this hot new area, green chemistry. So, Allison, what exactly is green chemistry? So generally speaking, when, you, when we think about green chemistry, it originally started as an industry term. Um, and if you Google green chemistry or definition of green chemistry, one of the things that will pop up a lot is something called the 12 principles of green chemistry. Yeah, yeah they did a really great job with those. Um, so so that's, all of that really comes from industry and trying to design new products and being mindful of, of basically upstream. So... In essence, when we talk a lot about sustainability a lot, when we when we think about laboratory spaces, and in general, when we think about sustainability, we're always managing the downstream side of things, right? So we talk about sustainability in our homes, but we're always talking about turning off lights, but not often about the light fixture themselves, although lately, of course, bulbs, right, might be something. But we talk about turning down the thermostat, but not replacing the HVAC system. We... Right. And when it came to chemistry, we would talk about managing the waste, but never designing the experiment in the first place so that you didn't produce that kind of waste. Right. So in essence, that's what that's what the whole movement is about. It's just starting further upstream so that you don't end up in a really bad situation where you have to manage using too much energy, um, using more uh, more chemicals than you need to, mm -hmm. producing hazardous uh, byproducts, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that was, I think, about 25 years ago that that was. So it's actually been around for a really long time. Oh, I see. So it seems like reducing chemical waste was just one part of greening chemistry labs. And that in order to bring sustainability to labs, many more changes needed to be made. Our conversation quickly changed from simply talking about chemical waste to lab sustainability on college campuses. Allison talked about recycling gloves, more efficient air exchange systems, and single-pass cooling. We'll start with gloves. Uh, so Kimberly-Clark, which is a company mm -hmm. that makes uh, nitrile gloves, as well as mm -hmm. a company called TerraCycle, will recycle those for you, as long mm -hmm. as they aren't hazardous, uh, which I imagine they're probably not hazardous. Next, we have the air exchange systems, or essentially the AC, in chemistry labs. And this is one of the reasons why laboratory spaces actually use so much energy in general, is that they're constantly recirculating the air. So not just from the fume hood, but in the lab space overall. And they're doing that so that nobody in the lab is exposed to anything harmful. Right. And that is called an air change rate. So actually, this is this is 
relatively important in general, and I would imagine affects your teaching labs as well as any research labs you might have on campus. Mm -hmm. So in general, uh, laboratory spaces that have, and most laboratory spaces that we encounter that have not really thought about this before, right, that were designed some number of years ago and not touched again, are usually 15 to 20 air changes per hour. So if you think about that, the volume of the space that you're in, all of that air is extracted and all new air is brought in, say, 15 times an hour. That's a lot of energy right? required to do that. And if you imagine now coupled with the fact that your fume hoods might be open all the time and they're having to run to extract mm. a certain amount of air, it gets to be out of control and really right. expensive. So Harvard recently did this awesome study where their one of their um, people in the office of sustainability who also used to be uh, a scientist uh, he worked with a company that called gasmet that makes this device that kind of looks like a, you're a ghostbuster where you're walking around and you can actually measure in real time the chemical exposure of i forget how many chemicals but it's quite a few hundreds of different chemicals at once and when they did this in real time, they were able to see what the exposure rates were and make a really good case for reducing air change rates down from, I think their buildings were set to eight air, air changes per hour, and they set them down to four when the building was occupied and two when the building was unoccupied. Finally, we have single pass cooling. If you've ever noticed, there are these nozzles uh, in a lot of chemistry labs, right? There are nozzles yeah. on, the, on the faucets. So you would attach a hose to that and, and in essence, run water around a reaction in order to cool mm -hmm. it. And right. what most traditional labs do is that they'll run the hose, they'll run the water around the experiment, and then they'll dump the water down the drain. Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. For like when you're doing something like refluxing. Exactly. You'll use like a condenser. Yep. And then yeah. so all that water gets, does right. get reused. Oh. Right. It's yeah. incredibly wasteful, incredibly mm -hmm. wasteful, obviously. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and also really, really dangerous if it's not just in a, in sort of a teaching lab setting, but let's say you're running that overnight because mm -hmm. if the, if the hose comes loose and this has happened in, in many places that I know of, you can have a flood. And actually UC Santa Barbara had a terrible flood where they, I think it was left over a weekend and it did millions of dollars worth of damage because it damaged their electron microscope. Um, and that was it, which was a, a floor below where the, where it happened. So in California, at least in the many of the universities and colleges out here, single pass cooling is banned. Um, and that's something that I try to tell people, just stop doing that. So really simple things that you can do. One, um, for the, the cheapest alternative is to get an ice bucket and a fish pump and just create a recirculating water bath uh, okay. yourself, right? So that's really easy. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's also, for depending on the size of the reaction, there's uh, options that are air-cooled condensers that you can use. So from gloves to fume hoods to the experiments themselves, there are so many ways to make labs more sustainable. What can a simple college student do about this? In general, there's been a lot more interest in lab sustainability 
and I have to say, I think a lot of that has to do with our organization because we are wholly dedicated to talking about this every opportunity we get and to helping people implement these changes in their labs. And so the more it becomes sort of normalized, the easier it is for people to have these conversations. Like this is the first time I've had a student reach out to us to say, hey, look, we're really interested in implementing green chemistry. Mm -hmm. Um, The nonprofit that we collaborated with, you know, moving forward beyond the podcast, they'd be a great resource for you if you're going Mm -hmm. to be implementing changes. Yeah. Um, Because that is... That is exactly what Beyond Benign does. They work with uh, educational institutes to implement green chemistry. So with that, though, one thing that I was thinking that might be useful, because you had asked, you know, things that you can do. Beyond Benign has something called the Green Chemistry Commitment, and it's for universities and colleges to sign that, that basically just says, look, we recognize that this is important. And we have a commitment to implementing the principles of green chemistry in our, in our classes and in our teaching labs. I think that would be a really good first step for a couple of reasons. One, it it would get the chemistry department aligned with the idea of green chemistry, right? So everybody's on the same page. And then two, it would put you in touch with a large network of other universities and colleges that have already started to implement these best practices so that you can rely on their experience as you go through the process of changing some out some of your your labs because that's really ultimately what you need to be doing right is you need to be going to the head of the chemistry department and saying look the labs that you have us do they're Mm -hmm. they're antiquated they're wasteful and i mean in a nice way right this is this is a bit where please don't quote me um right they're antiquated they're wasteful and we can do a better job Going back to the beginning, this all started from my simple question about where our waste goes after doing Qual Lab. That question went from just one teaching lab, talking with Professor Carasquillo, to chemical waste management at Williams with Dr. Ann Skinner, to the green chemistry discipline with Professor Carasquillo again, to the entire lab sustainability movement with Alice in Paradise. And now, I hope to bring some of these changes to our chemistry department here at Williams. Some synthesis are bad They can really make you mad Other chemistry just smells and makes a mess If the molecule's a hassle Don't crumble, give a whistle Green chemistry will change things for the best Professor Carasquillo, Professor Skinner, and Alice in Paradise. And thanks to Mike Evans and the other students of this course for helping contribute to the production of this podcast. This podcast was produced, edited, and scored by yours truly, Oliver Yang. Thanks for listening. That's a bit weak, isn't it? Come on, cheer up! Did you hear? <laughs> okay, again. Okay. Always use the green to